Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7, the, the second paragraph of the chapter. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1007. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. As we prepare to hear God's word read and preached, let us go before him and ask for his mercy to hear his words as they truly are, as the very words of God. Let us pray. Father God, in fact, we come before you now, humbly asking for your grace. Father, may you remember your promise that your word not return void, but that it accomplish its purpose and bring forth a harvest of righteousness to the praise of your glory. Father, may your word, in fact, be your power for the salvation of those who believe here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. This is the very word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the reading of God's word. This chapter, Hebrews 11, is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. It is a collection of, of stories of, of those who lived by faith, of those who lived out their faith, of those who exemplified how faith lives in this present age. And here before us this morning, we have the first three accounts of, of men who were commended because they lived by faith. The, the account of Abel and Enoch and Noah. But as we come to this chapter, it is vital for us to understand why the author is giving us these snapshots. Why he is giving us these, these mini biographies of these Old Testament saints. What is it that he is trying to accomplish? What is his purpose as he recounts these stories? Now for some of you, the, the answer to that question might seem obvious. He is giving us these stories clearly because he, he wants us to imitate the men whom he is describing, and the, the women whom he will describe later in the chapter. He is presenting us with these heroes of faith that we might endeavor to be like them. And I said that seems to some of you to be obvious, but I know, I know from experience, I know from my own teaching, 
that we often resist the idea of imitation in our circles. We resist the idea of imitation because we fear that if we tell people to be like the Old Testament saints, that that we will somehow uh, be preaching legalism rather than the gospel. We'll be preaching the law. We'll be telling people that if you are just like these saints, then you will be right with God. God will commend you. Isn't that what the text says? And so we are wary of of preaching the saints. We don't want to preach the saints. We we want to preach Christ. In fact, when I was in seminary, the the, the homiletical classes, the classes that taught us how to preach were called Christ-centered preaching. And we were explicitly warned in those classes not to preach be-like sermons. Don't tell your people to be like the Old Testament saints. And I understand the, the dangers that can be inherent in imitation and in the endeavor to imitate. But I also want to suggest to you this morning that that is exactly what we are being called to do. Yes, there are dangers in imitation. If you think that you are going to earn God's favor, if you think that that somehow you are going to earn your way into God's good graces by being like these men, then you have missed the point completely. This is not a picture of the law. This is not a picture of what we must do in order to uh, ingratiate ourselves to God. Rather, this is a picture of what it looks like to believe in the Redeemer whom God in His love has sent for us. That's the point. What we're being called to imitate is is not their law-keeping, but their faith. But we are being called to imitate. That's that's clearly implied in the last paragraph of of chapter 10. Look back again at the last paragraph of of chapter 10. He's actually calling on the Hebrews to imitate their former selves. He says, recall your former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, remember the days after you were enlightened. Remember the days when you walked in the footsteps of faith. Do you see that? They were walking as people who knew what? Who knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Who knew that in Christ they had received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them, even as they were being kept by God's power through faith. They knew the inheritance that was theirs. They knew the reward that had been promised. And they lived like people who had the seal and the guarantee of that reward. They lived as people of hope. They walked in the footsteps of faith. And that showed itself in some very obvious ways. Notice they were able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. They were able to to identify with those who were being oppressed. We know how it goes in this world. When, When someone is being picked on, when someone is being oppressed, you distance yourself so that you don't come under the same wrath. That's the the natural human instinct. 
And yet these people moved towards those who were being oppressed. They, they moved towards those who were being afflicted because they weren't worried about their lives here. They weren't worried about their property here because they knew they had a better life. They knew they had a better possession. They lived by faith. And now the author is calling them back to that life of faith. He said, remember what you believed. Remember how it shaped your life. Return to that. Return to that life of hope. Notice what he says. He says, do not throw away your confidence, for it has a great reward, but rather endure. Endure in the life of faith. That is the call. That is what he is calling them to. He is, he is calling them to, to live as people of faith. We, we call the, the saints that are presented before us in chapter 11 sometimes, we, we refer to them as, as heroes, as the heroes of the faith. And a hero is, is someone who embodies excellence in some way that is worthy of our imitation, in some way that, that we consider profound, in some way that we consider beautiful, in some way that we want to be like them. Sometimes our heroes are sports figures because we, we, want, to, we want to possess the excellence that they have in their field. Sometimes they are superheroes, fictional characters, because we see the way that they fight for truth, justice in the American way. And we are amazed by the, the, the way that they are uncorruptible, by the way that they are able to pursue righteousness. And we want to be like them. It's actually good to have heroes. It is actually good to, to see embodiments of, of truth and of beauty and of, and of goodness that we want to emulate. It is, it is good to have heroes, and the author is telling us that the, the most beautiful heroes we can have are not the, the characters of the Marvel Universe, but the most beautiful heroes we can have are the saints who walked by faith. And so in this chapter, he is going to present us with a, with a series of heroes. Heroes whom he is calling on us to imitate. In fact, he, he said that explicitly back in chapter 6. If you'll remember what we saw earlier, he said very explicitly, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So yes, these men, these women, they are presented to you for your imitation. Not so that you can earn God's favor. Not so that you can do for yourself what Christ has already done for you. But so rather so that you can see more clearly what does it mean to walk in the footsteps of faith? What does it mean to live as one who truly believes in Jesus Christ? That's the question that's being answered. This is what a life of faith looks like. This is how faith presents itself. This is how faith manifests itself in our lives. And so I want us to look at each of these stories this morning, and I want us to ask, what is it that we see faith doing? What, what fruit do we see faith bringing forth? What does it mean to live by faith? Then I want us to ask why faith produces such a life. Why, how does faith actually work? And then seeing how faith produces such a life, I think we will be able to see how it is that we might now grow in the faith 
that produces such a life. So let's begin with the examples themselves, with the stories. We first have Abel. We're, we're told that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. You may remember the story. It is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you might have read that story recently. Abel and, and Cain are brothers. Cain is the older. Abel is the younger. They are the children of, of Adam and Eve. And we are told that, that early on, they both brought an offering to the Lord. Cain brought of his, the fruits of his, uh, of his labors. He was a, a farmer. He was a tiller of the ground. And so he brought some grain to the Lord. Abel was a, was a keeper of sheep. And so he brought the first fruits and the, 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 the fat of his flock before God. And we're told that Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was not. So the question that we are left asking is why? What made Abel's sacrifice better? What was better about the sacrifice that, that he brought? And there have been many possible answers suggested. One answer that, that people point out right away is that, well, Abel's offering, because he brought animals from the flock, Abel's offering involved blood, while Cain's did not. Abel brought a blood offering. Cain brought a, a grain offering. Some people push back against that explanation because they say, well, grain offerings are allowed. We, we, we see this explicitly set forth in the book of Leviticus, which describes the offerings that the, the people of Israel were supposed to bring. Grain offerings were allowable. They, they could bring them as a thank offering. They could bring them as a, as a peace offering. So it can't be that God doesn't accept grain offerings. But you have to remember how the offerings of Leviticus worked. The grain offering and the thank offering, these, these peace offerings that were brought before God were just that. They were offerings which celebrated and expressed the relationship between God and his people that had been restored by a previous offering. By an offering of blood, an offering which had brought atonement. The, the restoration of relationship through the, the covering of sins. And the covering of sins occurs only because of the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so it is possible that Cain's offering is a presumptuous offering. That he comes to celebrate the relationship he has with God through his grain offering... He comes to honor him as his God and to, and to make peace with him, but without acknowledging his sin, without first seeking atonement. We, we can't be certain because the text doesn't tell us, but it is possible that, that what was wrong with Cain's offering is that it was without blood. Another possibility is that Cain simply brought some of his grain while Abel brought the best. Abel brought the first fruits. He brought the, the fat. And so therefore he was bringing the best to God while, while Cain was just bringing some. And again, this is explicitly stated in the text of, of Genesis. And so it is an indicator that there was something going on. There was a, a difference. 
And we know from later on, from the Old Testament prophets, that God requires us to bring the best to him. Those, that which we offer to God must be without blemish or, or spot. The Old Testament prophets would, would chide the, the people of Israel for, for bringing the, the lame and the defective to, to God. God says through his prophets, try giving that to your human governor and seeing if he will accept it. We are to bring the best before God. And it seems at least possible that the, the text is telling us that Cain didn't do that. And so it, it's possible that, that Cain's offering was rejected because it was without blood. It's possible that Cain's offering was rejected because it was not the, the best. But we can't be certain for why Cain's offering was rejected. But we can know this, because the author of Hebrews tells us his offering was made without faith. Abel's offering was offered by faith. Cain's offering was without faith. And I want to suggest to you that we actually see that lack of faith in Cain's response when his offering is is rejected. He becomes angry. He becomes downcast. God says to him simply, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And instead of Cain coming before God and saying, well, then show me what is right. He becomes angry that God would be so presumptuous as to not accept what he brings. God ought to be happy with what he gets. God ought to be happy that I'm honoring him at all. This was Cain's attitude, but Abel came differently. Abel came with faith. He came before God offering a sacrifice of blood and offering a sacrifice of the the first and the best. He did what was right in God's sight. So the first thing that we see in this text is that faith expresses itself in right worship. Worship that acknowledges God for who He is. Worship that that does not presume to come before God on our own terms, but rather comes before God in humble submission to His own Word. This is the expression of faith. Faith honors God for who He is through right worship. But not only does does faith express itself in these, these times of special worship where we bring our offering before God, in the person of Enoch we see that faith also expresses itself in a life of worship. Look again at the text where we're told in verse 5 that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had had taken him. We we read of Enoch's story in Genesis chapter 5. And actually the account in Genesis isn't much longer than the summary that we get here in Hebrews. It actually comes in the the middle of a long litany of of the the lives of Adam's children. And the repeated phrase that we come to again and again and again throughout Genesis chapter 5 is that this person lived and had children, and then he died. And his children lived and had children, and then he died. And his children lived and had children, and then he died. It said over and over and over again 
It is a clear testimony to the effects of of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, of the, the entering of sin and death into the world, that man is now subject to the futility of death. That he is born under wrath. And yet of Enoch we are told that he walked with God. And then he was not, for God took him. It's not that we're we're supposed to believe that if you can just walk with God well enough, then you can escape death. But rather that God is able to save the one who pleases him from death. You see, Enoch walked with God, and and the author tells us that he did this by faith. He, He lived all of life, Coram Dei, who lived all of life before the face of God. He didn't just worship God at set times, but in all of life he walked before him. He he lived life before him. He did everything in the name of the Lord. He did everything unto the glory of his God. He, He lived as a creature of the Creator. He lived as a subject of the King. And he did so by faith. And it was pleasing to God. And so this is the second expression of of faith. Abel worshipped God by faith. Enoch walked with God by faith. He he lived a life pleasing to God by faith. And then we see the story of Noah. We're told in verse 7 that by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So the defining mark of Noah's faith was reverent fear. Again, we struggle with this today. We struggle with the fear of the Lord. We we struggle to to understand what it is. We we remember John telling us that perfect love drives out fear, and, and we think, well, we shouldn't fear God. And there is a sense in which we shouldn't fear God. We, we should not fear God as if He were capricious, as if He were random, as if He were cruel. But we ought to fear Him. We ought to have this reverent fear that Noah had. And how did that reverent fear express itself? It expressed itself in the building of the ark. And why did Noah build the ark? Why was he building this great boat? He was building this great boat because God told him that I have looked upon mankind and every inclination of his heart is only evil all the time. Think about that. It's quite a statement. God looks at mankind, he looks at the children of Adam, and his assessment is that every inclination of their heart is only evil all the time. They live in constant rebellion. It's what Paul echoes in, in Romans chapter 3. There is not one who is righteous. There is not one who seeks God. Even when we seek to do well, we, we do it for ulterior motives. We, we do it in selfish ambition. There is none who is righteous. There is none who seeks God in and of himself. We are all by nature under God's wrath because of our evil deeds. And God says, because of the sinfulness of man, my judgment is coming. There will be a great flood. So he instructs Noah to build a boat. 
to build an ark, to build a way of salvation. How would you have responded if you were Noah? How would you have responded to the idea that you were to to build this great boat far, far from the sea? It is because Noah took God at his word. It is because he feared him with awe and reverence. That he said, if God is judging the world and if he is providing a way of salvation, I will receive it. You see, this is what reverent fear does. It receives the salvation that God offers. For Noah, that meant building an ark for us today. It means receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He is the salvation that is offered. He is the ark. And we are to enter into Him as the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. You see, reverential fear doesn't complain against God that that He would dare not save us when we do our best, or that He would dare not save us when we try hard. But reverent fear accepts that God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. And if we would be saved, we will turn to Him and rest in Him, looking to Him alone for the salvation that He offers. This is the expression of faith. To live by faith, to walk in the footsteps of faith, is to worship God rightly as He is, according to His Word. It is is to walk in a manner pleasing to Him, living all of life before His face, living all of life as, as one who was created by Him and for Him. And it is with reverential fear to acknowledge that He is right in His judgments and to humbly receive the salvation that He offers through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the life of faith. This is the life that we are being called to imitate. We are being called to to live as as people who worship God, people who, who walk in a manner pleasing to Him, and people who in reverential fear rest in the gift of His Son. So the question is, how do we develop such faith? How, how, do we, how do we become people who, who have such faith? Well, to answer that question, we actually have to know what faith is. And the author gives us a, a glimpse of that question in verse 6. Look again at what he writes. He says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The one who has faith believes that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, now in context, he, the author is explaining how he knows that, that Enoch actually walked by faith. If you look back in Genesis chapter 5, faith isn't mentioned. We're told that, that Enoch walked with God, but we're not told that he did so by faith. How does the author draw that conclusion? Well, he, he draws that conclusion, he says, because it's impossible to please God without faith. Enoch pleased God, therefore Enoch must have had faith. And what is this faith that that Enoch had? It is a faith that believed that God exists, and it is a faith that believes that God rewards those who seek Him. 
What does it mean to believe that God exists? I want to suggest to you that it's, it's more than just sort of intellectual assent to, to the existence of some unmoved mover out there in the cosmos. We have many today who deny intellectually the existence of, of God. They are known as the, the new atheists. They, they, they believe that, that science and rationality has somehow proven that God is not there and that, that you have to turn your brain off to keep believing in, in God. They write a lot of books, but I would suggest to you that they are still a significant minority. Most people don't live as new atheists. Most people have a sense that, that God is there. And yet... They are not by faith believing that God exists. Because what the author here is talking about is not just the intellectual denial of God's existence, but he's talking about that practical denial which manifests itself in the way that we live. Think about the fool that we read about in the Psalms. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Such a fool was not necessarily a new atheist. He was not necessarily intellectually denying the existence of God, but rather he was choosing to live as if God were not there, as if God did not see, as if God did not care, as if God would not possibly intervene. Yes, he may be there, but he is a distant God, unconcerned with the, the things going on in this small little world. And I would suggest to you that there are many who live as such practical atheists, in the world today. When the author says that we must believe that God exists, he is saying that we must live as if God is there. We must allow the, the reality of who God is to, to shape the way that we live day to day. We must not choose to live moment by moment as if, as if God, if He's there, is, is so far removed that, that He is as unimportant to our daily lives. Faith believes that God is there, that the Creator God who, who called the world into existence and now sustains it by the word of His power is intimately and actively involved in all of the going-ons so that we do everything before His face. This is what faith believes. But not only does it believe that, that God is there, it also believes that that he is good, that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You see, you could believe that God is there and believe him to be cruel. You could believe that, that God is there and believe him to be capricious. You could believe that, that God is there and still not trust him. But biblical faith not only believes that God is there, but it believes that he is good and that he gives good gifts to those who bow before him, to those who draw near to him. This is what faith believes. And it is such faith, the, the belief that, that God is there and the belief that he rewards those who come to him, it is that faith that, that then propels us into worship. Because such a God, a, a God who is there, a God who is actively involved, a, a God who, who rewards those who come to Him, that is a God worthy of our praise, a God who is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and praise. And He is a God 
before whom we must live. A God to whom we must dedicate our lives. And a God whom we must reverently fear. For if He is the sovereign Lord, then salvation is on His terms and no one else's. You see then that, that this faith, this believing that God is there, this believing that He rewards those who, who seek Him, it is a faith that, that transforms our entire lives. It is a, it is a faith that, that leads us to walk in a certain way. So the question is, how do we get such faith? How do we grow in such faith? Well, of course, that's what this chapter is all about. The author is, is recounting the, the stories of the saints of old so that in their lives we might see that God exists. That we might see that He rewards those who, who seek Him. But remember, this whole chapter is driving to a conclusion, and it's a conclusion that's actually stated in the next chapter. Turn with me to, to chapter 12, because this is where we're headed. This is why all these stories are recounted. Notice how he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a cloud that we will be looking at in detail in the weeks ahead, he said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely so that we can run with endurance. There it is. There's the endurance that he was talking about in chapter 10. He says, seeing this great cloud of witnesses is going to enable us to run with the endurance that we need to, to walk in the footsteps of faith. But notice, he says, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, let us put off sin and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You see, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and we are to, we are to look at them, and we are to seek to imitate them. But what we are to imitate is the fact that they themselves were looking to Jesus. You see, this great cloud of witnesses points us not to itself, but beyond itself. It points us to the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for it is in Jesus that we know God exists. He is the Word of God, not only spoken, but incarnate. He is God with us. And in Him we have seen the Father in Him we know that God is there. And because He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, in Him we know that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him. God is a good and gracious God. God is a God who delights to give good gifts to His children. And we can be certain that if He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him as the sacrifice for our sins, how will He not also reward us with every good thing in Him? You see, in Jesus Christ, our faith finds its fountain. In Jesus Christ, our faith finds its perfection. And it is as we look to Him, as we set our mind on Him, it is as we come to Him again and again and again that we will grow in faith and that we will we will, we will be strengthened in faith and that we will be able more and more to walk in the footsteps of faith. And so if you need endurance this morning, if you are struggling to, to walk in the footsteps of faith this morning, 
The answer is not to look inward. The answer isn't even necessarily to look to these saints, but it's rather to follow their eyes to the one upon whom they gaze. Because what we're going to see throughout this chapter is that each of these saints was able to walk in the footsteps of faith, a faith that was focused on the promised and coming Savior, one whom we see now all the more clearly because we know his name, and his name is Jesus. So if you are struggling to walk in the footsteps of faith this morning, set your eyes on him. For in him you know that God exists. And in him you know that he rewards those who seek him. And if you know those things, then you can endure. You can walk in a way that is pleasing to him. And if you can walk in a way that is pleasing to him, then you will not fail to receive all that has been promised. For all that has been promised is received by faith. Faith in the Son. Faith in the founder and perfecter of all faith. So let us this year, even as we resolve to, to walk in new ways, let us resolve to find the strength to walk in new ways by setting our eyes upon Him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For in Him we will find the endurance we need. And because He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before You now humbly asking that You would give us the grace we need to set our eyes upon Jesus. Father, may we in Him see that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. May in Him, may we hear God's voice. May we hear His Word. And may we not harden our hearts, but receive it with reverential fear as the Word of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.